expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. Thank you for joining us once again for episode 110 of the Down and Nerdy podcast, where we like our ecto shaken, not stirred. Dude, when I found out that Ecto Cooler was coming back, I was so fucking excited. I was like, yes! I mean, you know what? Honestly, we heard the rumors, but now we know for sure that it's coming back. I'm James <laughs> with him alongside. Uh, I'm the Merc with one arm, Nick Pataglia. And yeah, man, uh, Ecto Cooler is back. Uh, I, 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 how much? Okay, here's a question. How many people are going to buy a thing of Ecto Cooler and then try to sell for like a thousand or two thousand dollars on eBay? Well, you know, they're going to do it, but then they're going to wait until it's going to be gone and back out of production again, and that's when they're going to try and sell it because that's what right. happened with Surge. Right, 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 right. But, you know, speaking of Surge, man, we saw a surge of people who were just hitting us up all weekend on Twitter and our Facebooks because. They loved our interview with Tom Ellis and D.B. Woodside from Lucifer, of course. We're going to be reviewing the season finale and Geek Tamit this week. But, of course, man, everybody just loved the interview. And those guys are just so fun to have on. Again, just thanks to Fox for helping us set it up. And they're really, really fun to talk to. Yeah, they were. As a matter of fact, we kind of uh, kind of was exactly what we thought was going to happen. We started a little something on Twitter. And uh, Tom tweeted D.B. and said, hey, what's going on, bro? Or something like that about <laughs> yeah. the comment that he made about Tom saying that, Metadeal did more of the mischief than Lucifer did, and that got the fans going. So thanks for everybody who was uh, interacting on that post. And if you're listening to us for the first time since that show, I mean, thanks for jumping on board. You know, we like to have a lot of fun here, and Lucifer definitely gives us plenty of our opportunities to do that. Exactly, man. I mean, you know, and, and what I like, too, is that you can tell the show is good. I mean, of course, his writing, his acting is great, but also what makes the show good, I think memorable as well, especially in this day and age, with social media is their social media team and just going back and forth with the, you know, loose around Fox on Twitter and just shooting things back and forth and just cracking jokes. It's really fun. You know what I'm saying? And it, and it really is, you know, we're a show that prides itself on interaction with people and the fans. And, you know, you love seeing shows that are very interactive like that as well, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's just so cool to see people as into the show as we're into the show, you know? I mean, it just shows you just how much of a following it had and why, we're going to be getting a season two, and actually, even after the finale was over, they actually told everyone, they did a little tease, and they said, hey, guess what? If you're anxious for Lucifer, there's going to be a season two coming up this fall, so they've already told people that might not have already known that there's going to be a season two, and we're going to have our spoiler-filled review of the Lucifer finale coming up, like you said, in This Week in Geek Tainment. Exactly, James, and come next, we have two new comics that we're reviewing this week. What are they? Stay tuned and find out what we're reading is coming up next, right here on the Down Nerdy Podcast. Hello, this is Tom Ellis from Lucifer on Fox, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, nerds, it's time we get out our long boxes, we discuss what we're reading this week. As always, this segment is brought to you by the fine folks of Fantasy Escape Comics and Cards on Aragorn Boulevard. Go see Bob and all the great things he has for yourself and the nerds that you love. And don't forget, May 7th, can't believe it's next Saturday. No, right? We're going to be there doing a live show on Facebook, man. It's going to be pretty awesome. Yeah, it's going to be great. I can't wait to get on out there. But first things first, we've got to talk about the comics that we read this week. As a matter of fact, I think you should go first. All right. Well, you know how here on the podcast, we like reading things that might be out of our comfort zone, stuff like that, or maybe something that, you know, 
because we have a vast variety of audience. We have male, female, young, old, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of want to, you know, do sometimes go out of the ordinary and do things that we might never have done before, just to say, just to kind of grow our own taste and just also give people an idea of what other books are out there. So I did an IDW property today, James, or this week, I should say, and it's something I think you have never thought I would have done. I did strawberry shortcake number one this week. Wow. So you just said growing your own taste and you're reviewing strawberry shortcake. Oh, God damn it. It's like a cancer. I'm telling See, you didn't even realize you did it. And Wow. Well, what's it tasty then? <laughs> well, before I dive into if it was tasty or not, let me just give through who did it. Of course, it was written by Georgia Ball. The art's done by Amy Meberson. And the colors done by Fernando Peniche and letters done by Robbie Robbins. And I got to tell you, man, I did this book because people are probably saying, well, why? really? You're a 27-year-old male and you're reading Strawberry Shortcake? Why? Well, again, as I said, we have a lot of parents actually listen to the show yep. as well, believe it or not. And, you know, they have kids and they have daughters. And, you know, so I want to read something that, hey, maybe this is something that you want to get them into, especially, you know, with girls they are into Strawberry Shortcake and stuff like that. So... <laughs> Real quick synopsis here. Pretty much it centers around uh, this whole Berrykins, little rise, little daycare kind of thing they're doing, uh, Strawberry Shortcake and the gang. And they need some money and they need some some things for some new attractions, I'll say, and to fix some certain equipment around their area. And so Strawberry Shortcake enters in a bake-off, pretty much, like a baking competition. And a lot of, you know, hilarity and, and, and different things ensue that I'm not going to dive into. Uh, I'll say this. The colors are amazing. Well, they should be for something like this, I would think. The colors are amazing. And what I like about this book, too, is that they updated everybody's look. It doesn't look like the, you know what I'm saying? She doesn't look like, uh, Strawberry Shortcake doesn't look like a baker from like the 1800s mm-hmm. anymore. She looks like, you know, modern day teenage girl, probably around 10, 11 years old, whatever. I just want to point out that there was no internet rage over the changing of look of strawberry shortcake. (laughs) Like there would be for like the ancient one or something like that. No, no strawberry shortcake outrage at all. Well, no, I mean, people were pissed off that they changed the, you know, back in the day, Coke changed the flavor for new Coke. And uh, can you imagine the fan rage of like, why did you change the look of strawberry shortcake? Oh, could you imagine if it was cheese, I mean, cherry shortcake? People would be pissed. Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> look out. But no, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm a, yes, I'm a 27-year-old male, and I've read Strawberry Shortcake number one, and I will say this, though. It was pretty good. Like, I'm not going to, now, granted, I'm not going to read any more of it, because it's not something that really, you know what I'm saying? It's not it's my It's not your teeth. wheelhouse, yeah. No, it's not my wheelhouse at all. But if you have a daughter... This is a comic you and you want to get them in the comics, especially. This is something great to get them into because the story is great. There were actually times where I was laughing out loud at some of the jokes, wow. like some, like some of the humor in this is pretty funny. And what's cool is like you see the little berry cans, like little you know buried children kind of thing, and it's just there's certain things like when certain things go wrong, you know how it is where it's like. You, you read something and it's just very uplifting. It's yeah. very, very yeah. positive. And you have a son, so you watch like kids shows with him. And everybody's like, come on, gang, let's go do it, kind of stuff like that. And then when something goes wrong, you feel like you die inside. Yeah. Because you're like, oh, they're so adorable and this is going <laughs> wrong. And oh my God, I want to hug them. <laughs> ah, biscuits, what are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, it's just one of those things where, the cuteness factor is is 
and a twelve, pretty much. And uh, again, the colors the colors are great in this. The art is is really really good, and I like the new updated looks everybody has to to fit modern you know modern times, modern day. I like that. Actually, one of the uh, one of the covers that was a um, a variant was actually the old school strawberry shortcake look. Nice. Well, I mean, you got to throw that in for variant, right? Color, right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And uh, you know, and, and the cool thing is, is, is you know, uh, again, this was a really, really good book, and it's like I said, if you have a young uh, girl at home, like if I had a daughter, I definitely like she's around like nine, ten years old, and I wanted to get her into comics. I definitely start off in this. So this is a definite pull for me. Yeah, and what's cool about it, all kidding aside, is there's not enough books like what you're describing to get young girls into comics. So I think that it's great that IDW's decided to go that route. Also with their Disney comics, I think they do a pretty good job. But this one's for girls, I think. And I think to get young girls into comics is is definitely very cool. Right, and what's cool is, like I said, and what's cool, I think, about IDW doing this with Strawberry Shortcake is, you know, listen, having you know these new female superheroes for girls, uh, you know, read about and watch. It's, it's, it's a good thing. It's awesome. But there are also going to be girls who aren't really into the superhero thing, but it might be in the comics. You know what I'm saying? And this is something good for them. You know, if, hey, you don't, you don't want to read about a certain superhero whoever, guess what? Here's this, you know, show that you watch or whatever, and here's a comic that's based off of it, and they yep. can go into that. And so it's good at giving young girls such different avenues to get into comics. It's a great thing. Yep, variety is the spice of life, after all. That, oh, you did it. That's a saying. I didn't make that up. I wish I could take credit for but it. But you know what you did, you son of a bitch. Of course I know what I did. Exactly. Well, what'd you do this week, man? I actually did something from Dynamite this week called King's Quest number one. Now, cards on the table. I actually, when I saw that this book was coming out, I actually picked it up thinking that just based on title alone, I picked it up and said, oh, I wonder if this is going to be about the King's Quest game from Sierra from back (laughs) in the day. I'm so excited. But, I mean, I was just as excited when I saw the cover because who's on the cover? Phantom! Phantom, bitches! Phantom's on the cover. (laughs) Flash Gordon, Mandrake the Magician, Prince Valiant, and since it's on the cover, we could talk about it. Another Phantom. Yes, and it's and it's a it's a female Phantom. And uh, let's get that out there too. And you know, I read this as well, man. I texted immediately after I read it because you because you know when you said you're doing King's Quest, I literally thought I'm like, okay, as you like with knights or something like that because of the name of the book. Yep. But then I read it and I'm like, and you're like, oh, it has Phantom in it. So I immediately because you know I love Phantom. He's one of my top favorite uh, comic book characters. And I read it, and I was blown away by it, man. If there's one thing that Dynamite does really, really well, it's ensemble pieces. Oh, definitely. And before I get into uh, the the meat of the book here, I want to let you know it's written by Ben Acker and Heath Corson. Art is done by Dan McDade, and colors by Ami Ramalante, and letters by Simon Bolin. Now, I don't want to go too far into the plot, but this is part of the synopsis of the book, so I can tell you that basically their mission is to rescue Dale Arden. If you're a Flash Gordon fan, you already know who Dale Arden is, love interest of Flash Gordon. Now, again, I can tell you this because it's in the description as well. The main villain is, surprise, surprise, Ming the Merciless. Yes. So as they're going about trying to find out where Daryl Arden is, and there's a good backstory too that I don't want to get into that connects one of the characters other than Flash Gordon to Dale Arden, but I don't want to go into who it is because I think it's a nice little nice little surprise in the book itself. And let's just say things don't go well for the heroes in the beginning when they're trying to find out where Dale Arden is. There's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff that seems to go wrong, and there's a couple of mistakes that are made that are that lead to something. Uh, 
pretty epic in the middle of the book as far as a battle is concerned. But what's nice is, is there's nice humor. What I did not expect is the humor that's involved in this book. Right. You know, you jump into it and you get, you know, some humor pieces from Flash Gordon. And I get a very much Thor from the Avengers vibe from Prince Valiant where he's a serious and he's the knight. But at the same time, he has these... Quick little, quick little jabs that aren't necessarily meant to be funny, but they are funny kind of he, thing. Prince Valiant kind of came off to me as Scrappy Doo, just with his ad too, where he's like, "You will taste my, the blade of my steel" and stuff like that. But then he comes up with like some sort of quip, and it's one of those things. And, he, and he, I think it's the, the fact he has such tussable hair. Yeah, the ladies love the hair, man. It really was awesome because the, the the art was great. The you know, the, the art action was really good. Yeah. The action was great, and one thing I want to talk about, you know, I said I love the Phantom, but. Remember, there's two phantoms in this, and what is one thing the Phantom does now is that he kind of has this, you know, Robin-esque apprentice, pretty much, and is saying like, "You are the Phantom. You must act this way." You know, he's, he's keeping her in line. He's become pretty much Batman in a sense. Yeah, exactly, and he's definitely taking to the mentor role, but she's also following the advice of the other characters as well. I mean, you get some stuff from Mandrake the Magician, Magician with her as well in this book. And I gotta tell you, everybody gets their own little piece of a yeah. spotlight of what they do. Like, there's a, there's one panel with Mandrake the Magician when they're in one of the battles that I think is so epic. And I don't really want to describe it because I want people to see it when they read this book. It's just so cool that everybody gets their own little spotlight. Now, one of the things I loved is at the end of this book, there is a huge reveal at the end of this book, where if you are a fan of these characters, you're going to be like, oh my god, what just happened? And it and it makes you wonder what's going to happen in issue two, but not in a bad way. Right. It doesn't necessarily, it leaves you wanting more, more than it does go, well, I don't know what they're going to do with this. No, it's exact opposite. You sit and you go, I can't wait to see what they're going to do with this. So, I mean, it, it changes things dramatically. From the beginning of the book, I can tell you that much. Exactly. So what's your rating on this, man? It's a pull, man. I mean, this is definitely a pull. Just to put, bring all these characters together, and they kind of tell you what the reason for that is, too. Not in great detail, but just enough, so that there's not a plot hole there. Uh, you figure Ming the Merciless is going to be the main villain. I just think, with the humor, the action, like you said, the art was really good. Every character was written well. Definitely a pull for me. All right. That's going to do it for what reading this week. But come next... Lucifer finale aired on Monday, and of course, we're going to review it and sit down, because of course we come off of a week where we had Tom Ellis and D.B. Woodside on from the show, and guess what? We're going to talk about the Lucifer finale and review it, come up next, right here on the Down Nerdy Podcast. Hey everyone, this is D.B. Woodside from Lucifer on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, Nick, I think we should take one final trip to hell for the season before we head on back up to the heavens and talk about Lucifer's season finale that aired this past week. And man, so much stuff went down. Well, I mean, you want to, let's, you know, the episode prior to the finale, you know, the penultimate, ended with, did Lucifer kill this, you know, this priest, this, this guy? Right. Did he kill this guy? He's being framed. And... That hooks you into the finale, first of all. So going to the finale, you know, it's just like, oh, my God. We, you know, you want to believe that he didn't do it. You want to say that he was framed. And when you find out every, just everything, you just find out everything, you know, going into this. Wow. It's just, it's just how I love how everything, just from the writer's perspective, how everything just comes together. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I mean, it was, it was weird because that, that beginning part where, obviously, we know that Lucifer didn't kill the guy because he was upstairs the entire time, but it was right. Chloe 
Chloe didn't know. She's right. the one that said, you know, put your hands on your head. And that scene in the beginning where she says, come to the station peacefully. And he's like, no, I won't. And it's like, oh, no. And he's telling, oh, people, yeah. to, telling people to shoot him and everything. And he's at this point in the beginning of the episode, he's done. Oh, yeah. He's just done. And then, of course, this is spoiler filled. We're going to tell you that right now before we get too far into it. But then he's Amenadiel swoops in and saves his brother kind of yeah. unexpectedly. Yeah, and I think that part of it was I think Amendiel saw what he did and what happened and how the you know the errors of his own ways have left his own brother in a very vulnerable position and so he felt I think compelled to do it, you know, and compelled to to help him out, especially to cleanse his name going into it, you know. Yeah, and it was one of those things where, you know, we need to clean up our mess and it's like and Lucifer's like, "No, we're here and we need to clean up your mess, not right. mine," kind of thing. Right. So, and then that kind of starts the unexpected alliance of the two brothers. And then we get another unexpected alliance a little bit later on in the show. Oh, yeah. And that, exactly. You know, uh, Detective Douche there kind of a, becomes a little bit of an alliance there, you know. And I mean, you know, it's, it's one of those things, man, where, he, every, again, this is the episode where I think a lot of people outside of Detective Decker really saw the era of their ways. And, and I think this was a really tenant. So if there's, that's what I'm saying. If there's a, a certain theme for this episode, for this finale, it was definitely the theme of like penance and just paying for your sins and everything else. So, you know, Dan realizing like, you know, I'm going to take the fall here. And what happens? He turns himself in says, I'm responsible for this and this and this. And, you know, it's really, really, really something that, you know, it's, it's very powerful. You know? Yeah, and then you get the no more detective douche. He's like, well, at least not for now. Because he actually calls him Detective Espinosa for the first time all season when he turns himself in, which kind of absolves Lucifer. I mean, I think that Chloe kind of knew all along that Lucifer wasn't guilty. But you, you see her, she never strays from doing her job. Even when they're chasing Malcolm and trying to get the money from him in the warehouse, right? she won't let Lucifer go after Malcolm, even though, you know, they seize the money, but she wouldn't let him pursue Malcolm because she didn't want him to cross that line. Right. And, you know, that's the thing too is with Malcolm is, you know, this is a guy, you know, he spends, you see, he spent all his family's money on stupid shit. And he's just, I mean, he, he snapped, you know, like, 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 I mean, he was a dick before he got shot. He was in the, you know, he was on, uh, in the emergency room and in the hospital, you know, on life support. But when he got re- resurrected, he just snapped, man. You know, he became consumed. Yeah. And remember, and- Maze explains that because she says he's got this insatiable taste because he's been to hell. Yeah. And that's now changed him. And remember, she says it's only going to get worse. And that was the, the culmination of that. I think we saw kind of at the end or towards the end of the finale anyway, where it just sort of built up over time. Oh, exactly. And I think that one thing I liked about this too, and this, I just want to go back to something you said earlier on this, you know, Todd, we had Tom Ellis on last week, of course, with Lucifer Morningstar on the show. And the scene where he's telling all the cops to shoot him, that was just so powerful because again, mm-hmm. Lucifer throughout the entire season, even from the first episode from the pilot, we see, Okay, the devil didn't make doesn't make people make bad decisions. They have the free will. And remember, we had Joe Henderson on earlier this season. He said, "Yeah, we want to explore the whole free will aspect and everything else." And so Lucifer, that's that point where he sees hell is torture. Even on Earth, I'm tor- as torture, and I'm unwanted here. It felt unwanted, and that's just again, it felt like a guy 
you know, who felt very out of place, especially who early in the season. Remember, he saves a guy from wanting to jump off a ledge. So in a sense, Lucifer is that guy, and it's a nice callback to yep. people who he's met throughout the season. That's just a phenomenal writing job by everybody on, on the show and just, you know, Tom Ellis as well. I mean, that was just really spectacular. Not only that, but remember when we were talking to Tom and we actually talked to Joe about this earlier in the season, how making the devil so likable. Yeah. But then we're also talking about, to play off what you're saying, is we're making the devil misunderstood because people think the devil's just evil and kills people and everything. What he does is he punishes those who deserve it. And I think that that was one of the things that they really sort of hammered home in the finale where they were like, I don't kill people. I punish people who deserve it. I'm not a monster. And I think that the fact that he was being painted as a monster, no matter what he did was what kind of pushed him over that edge and made him want to go back to hell. Right. And again, remember, you know, going back to what you said about Maze, where it's like, he's, you know, Malcolm's had taste of hell, you know, that's the thing is because Malcolm really, in a sense, wasn't really fearful of Lucifer. No, at all. Or anybody else for that matter. Yeah. And especially going to the, you know, heading towards the final part, you know, the final third act of the episode. And they're in that, that hangar, you know, cause he, he's kidnapped Trixie and he says, you know, come here and, and give me my money and everything else. And I'll give you your daughter back. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just one of those things where this is a guy at his wits end. He just doesn't care. And even when Lucifer shows up, he's kind of like, Hey, buddy, kind of thing. You know, like he doesn't yeah. have any fear. You know, he's not like, oh my God, you're here. He's like, okay, I know you're here, kind of thing. It's like, this guy has nothing to lose. You know, and the thing is, he's, the fact is, is that he's just a regular guy. Yeah, he's been brought yeah, back. Pretty much. But it's not like he's been brought back and has been given like a vast array of powers or anything by a men deal. He's just been brought back and saved from dying. That's it. And again, it's that, that invincibility that he feels, which makes, I felt made him, Really a very vindictive villain uh, in this first season. Yeah, and you. And what's funny is you start to hate him exponentially over the last few episodes. Like, it really rises. And I don't know about you, but again, spoiler filled here. When Amenadiel gets stabbed, I'm like, you son of a bitch. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, now I hate you even more kind of thing. And exactly. we know how we know what happens to uh, Amenadiel after that with Maze helping him out, and then when he shoots Lucifer, you feel like, you know what, now I want you to die, kind of thing, but one of the greatest parts oh, yes. of this whole episode was, you know, we see Lucifer be brash, and he's hilarious, and he's a smartass, but when he's laying there bleeding to death, and he's praying, essentially, yeah. to, his, to his dad to say, you know, just save Detective Decker, and he kind of... It was just a very emotional well, moment. It was very outside the realm of what we were used to seeing from his character. Well, not just, you know, save Detective Dector. It was Lucifer pretty much saying, I'm yours. I am at your will. Yeah, I'll be the man you want me to be kind of thing. Yes, I, wherever you want me, I will go and just please just save Chloe and, and, and you know, and, and be there for her and everything else. And, and like I said, this is, this is, this is a man who knows he's about to fall off the edge of a cliff and fall to his death, pretty much, and is just making peace before he goes. And that was just such a powerful scene, because the entire time he's going to see, you know, Dr. Martin, you know, about, you know, his relationship with his dad and Uh talk about certain things, and the entire scene is talking about how, oh, my father doesn't, you know, I'm misunderstood, my father doesn't like it when you say this or do this thing or whatever, and then he just to have him... 
at his father's will, pretty much, just saying, I'm dying, Dad. I will do whatever it is you ask me. Send me wherever you want to go, and I am there. And then, remember what Tom said last week, we will get to see hell. And I'm going to say this. I am so glad they didn't make hell all fire and brimstone. Right. I'm glad that it was very, it was kind of very snowy. And it, was, kind of, it was ashy, that's for it was, sure. <laughs> it was ashy. Okay, not snowy, but it was ashy. Well, it was snowing ash, so it was, it's a little different. Maybe if it's right. in hell, how, do you, how else do you expect it to snow? But <laughs> it, it was a different take from the hell oh, we've definitely. seen. You know, remember when you see something that takes place in hell, it's fire and whatever else. No, it was like very grim, and it was very contained. It was it, You felt like when he's walking through that little alleyway right there, he is, you know, you felt very claustrophobic yeah and it was it was dark and it was desolate and it was isolated and it was just kind of all over the place which is you know something that would drive you mad i would think if you were in hell so now speaking of hell we got to address it man got to address it you see that somebody somebody forgot to lock the door in hell or something somebody gets out and we find out right at the end of the finale that it's their mother. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as the same as when you see Lucifer walking through hell, he sees this, like, what looks to be a shipping container has been opened. And he's like, oh my God, it's open. It's not so, how did it get open? It's not supposed to be open. You're like, well, wait, what the hell is going on here? What is he talking about? Who is he talking about? And then at the end, he's sitting in his penthouse, Mendel's there, and he goes, we got problems. Who is he? He goes, it's mom. And he's scared. Yeah. That's the crazy thing is he is scared and nothing scares him. And she's on Earth, yeah. by the way. She's yeah. just escaped. She is a Amenadio made a joke about ha wayward soul. He's like, No. No, not just a wayward soul. So she's on Earth yeah. somewhere. I'm hoping that by Comic Con, maybe San Diego Comic Con, we get a little bit of an idea of who it's gonna be and who the right. casting might be. But I mean I know that in the comics that Lilith is Maze's mother. Right. But that doesn't mean that it couldn't be Lilith because they've cha- obviously Joe and the gang have changed things for the show and, and done a very good job of doing so. So they could still use Lilith as the mother of Lucifer and Amenadiel. Right, but they can also use Eve. And, that's a, and I think that right there in itself creates just such a great build for season two because who is it going to be? Are they going to use Eve? they can use Lilith? How are they going to change things up positively for season two? We don't know. And again, now we see that, hey, Lucifer, remember, he told his dad, he says, hey, wherever you want me to be, I will be. And what happens? His coin starts to disappear and everything yep. else. Yep. And we're like, okay, his dad, God, wants him on Earth. And then we find out why. Because remember, when we watched this, we got to watch it you know, a while back, actually before uh, it aired on, on Monday, we saw it and we're like, oh, he wants him on Earth. Okay, maybe he wants to be like the guardian of Earth. Why is that? And then we find out, yep, it's because his mom is there. And it's like, it's kind of like, you know what it is? It's like the end of James Bond. And you have M there. And it's like, Bond, here's your next mission. And that's what it is. It's like God saying, Lucifer, yep. you're on Earth. Your coin is gone. You know, here's your next mission. And it's funny because I know it was kind of easy for fans to kind of start thinking, okay, where are they going to go in season two? We know there's going to be a season two. Where are they going to go? And they created something perfectly, not just that, but kicked it up a notch because remember throughout the whole season, we were wondering, okay, 
who the hell is the actual main antagonist here? I mean, it could have been a meta deal at one point, and then right. you don't really think about Malcolm. You thought it might have been Detective Douche, and then you find out it's Malcolm, and yeah. they built that so well, but they left it quite not. And it wasn't a bad way they did it either. It was a fantastic way. They kind of kept you guessing. All right, who's going to be the big bad when it comes down to it? And the fact that they were able to create Malcolm in that sort of persona, I think, was brilliant. Right, and what's great about Malcolm being the first villain of the season, pretty much, is that they're. I like the route they're going, where it's not big. You know, what I'm saying big bad after big bad, where it's like, okay, demon first season, and then you know their mother's second season. You know right. what I'm saying? It's not like it's not like okay, each season going against this bigger and badder villain or whomever. It's like, no, nope, we're gonna start off small, give us somebody first. And then we're going to build our way up. Right, know? exactly. Kind of like when, when in the first season of Arrow, when they had uh, the, the chi- when they had China White and that uh, whole syndicate type thing that he was going against. And then who ends up being the big bad at the end? It's Malcolm Merlin kind of thing. Except this way, they did it obviously differently. Right. But it was just a great way for them to do that. And it's like, hey, if you can make a guy like Malcolm be your main villain... That's pretty impressive. And you got, I mean, they had procedural stuff even before that, mm-hmm. but to to kind of hide him in the weeds and then make him pop up as the main villain towards the end, I thought it was brilliant. Well, and Kevin Rankin, who played Malcolm, is did such a great job. And I think that you know, and I want to ask you this: that moment where you know Lucifer and Malcolm are kind of like buddy buddy in a sense, or Malcolm's kind of sucking up to Lucifer a little bit because he knows that he is the devil in a sense. Did you think that okay? Malcolm's going to be a good guy. I I was starting to think that, like especially when he keeps him from basically choking the life of that preacher guy. I'm like, oh, well, maybe Malcolm's turned the corner. And then you find out, not so much. So they, it's almost like, yeah, they kept trying to pull you away from him being the, the big bad, and then, bam, we're right back into it again. Exactly. Well, I think time right now, James, is for a rating, so I'm going to have you go first. All right, so for the whole season, just like you said, the way it was written... Just the performance by Tom was fantastic. A lot of the other members of the cast did, did great as well. Leslie Ann Brandt did fantastic. Lauren German was great. This was a show that was feast or famine for fans, especially the Twitter warriors. You loved it or you hated it, and you were either you were stuck to the comic or you weren't. But those who were who gave this show a chance and opened their eyes to something new found what might have been the best new show on television this year and i'm not exaggerating about that at all just the way they put the stories together it was always interesting it always was you know you had to tune in you couldn't dvr it. you had to watch it live you couldn't pull yourself away from it so i have got to give this let's see 10 douches out of 10 that's a lot of douches that's a lot hey you gotta be clean man you're, you're a filthy animal you gotta i know keep that it clean well I'll, I'll second what you said that this season everything they did with it you know it was, it was one of those things where you either hated it for what they did and how they changed it and how they deviated from the comic, or you loved it because even though it was procedural and turned into a procedural, they did it some they did it in ways that made it seem fresh and made you know everything work and everything else. Uh, again, everybody was on the show, Tom Ellis, D.B. Woodside, Leslie Ann Brandt, you know, Lauren German, everybody, phenomenal job, you know, and just everybody did a great job. And this and I will back up and say that this is the best show, best new show on television this year because while there have been shows on other networks that I watch 
that are nerd related and I'm like, okay, there's an episode here this week, you know, that felt like a filler episode or this one didn't really have something. Or this one had kind of a plot hole kind of question here. However, with Lucifer, every episode was entertaining. Every episode brought something new. Every episode, you know, didn't have a plot hole that you could exploit or say, why did this happen or this happen? You know, they were smart. And it brought, you know, going back to when we had Joe Henderson, the executive producer and showrunner for Lucifer on, you know, way early on, you know, the show's pilot and everything. Uh, when he said we have a writer's room of people who've come from different areas, and it just goes to show that when you have a show, especially something like this, and you're a dead man from a comic, you're making these changes, it pays off to have people that have different backgrounds and writing styles, and you just do a great job in casting. This is 10 out of 10 talks with dad. That sounds like a good idea. I mean, 10 out of 10 for both of us, that doesn't happen very often. But definitely well-deserved by Lucifer because it was just a great, great show all season. Like you said, congrats to everybody on that. Exactly. And that's going to do it for our view of the season finale of Lucifer. Remember, season one is in the books. Season two is coming. And, oh, boy, we can't wait for it. But speaking of things we can't wait for, there's a bunch of nerd news we got to get to. And stick around. Nerd news coming next on the Down Nerdy Podcast. This is comic book artist Annie Wu, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, folks, it's time to go around the interwebs as we pull out our checkbooks this week because, James, it's time for what? Nerd News! And we're pulling out our checkbooks, James, because, well, it was reported about 36 hours ago. It wasn't confirmed, but it was reported that Comcast subsidiary NBC Universal, you know, was going to purchase DreamWorks Animation. Well, we're doing this on a Thursday and guess what? Thursday morning, actually this morning, it is confirmed that DreamWorks has been bought by Comcast for $3.8 billion. And this will be under the umbrella of NBC Universal Entertainment, by the way, which did put out the press release. Now, keep this in mind, though, the transaction is not expected to close until the end of the year, and it's still subject to antitrust approvals from the U.S., not only that, but abroad as well, but... This is a major, major acquisition. We've seen stuff like this, so even though it does have to go through those hurdles, this is pretty much going to be a done deal. And, I mean, think about it. That means that brings properties like Shrek and Madagascar and Kung Fu Panda, How to Train Your Dragon, under the NBC Universal umbrella that already had properties like Despicable Me. So this is very interesting. Exactly. And I think that, you know, bringing in DreamWorks Animation, now here's the thing. Some of the fallout from this was that Jeffrey Katzenberg, who, of course, was the head of DreamWorks Animation, he said if this deal goes through, he's leaving. Well, guess what? He's now going to be pretty much the Kevin Feige of the NBC Universal DreamWorks thing. He's going to be working for DreamWorks New Media. He's going to be heading that up now. So what that means is he's pretty much got control. He's going to be overseeing all the projects now that go through NBC Universal and DreamWorks Animation. Yep, and he's going to be part of their Awesomeness TV and Nova properties as well through NBC Universal. So we might see more stuff on the TV side. I know that Nickelodeon's run some series with DreamWorks shows in the past. You know, Penguins of Madagascar, and they've also had a Kung Fu Panda show that might now be might now come into the umbrella of this deal and we might even see more shows and now you know people love crossovers now we're looking at the possibilities of crossovers as well and it looks like he's going to be part of all that right and well here's the thing though too this is something that's kind of tricky a little bit maybe something that's probably going to end up holding up the sale a little bit because i mean we're it's going to go through what we think no matter what but what thing they can hold it up i'm looking at this right now is that the company, DreamWorks Animation, currently has a distribution deal with 
20th Century Fox. Now, the problem is that deal is up for renewal in 2017. Of course, it's not going to get renewed, but it runs through, you know, 2017 pretty much. Yeah. So, yeah, that's going to be interesting. It's going to be very, very interesting. But, I mean, you mentioned the crossovers. You mentioned everything else. It's going to be pretty interesting how Comcast, you know, does this pretty much and how they, they run things. I mean, I certainly don't think it's something they're going to jump into, but I mean, imagine like a big holiday special or somebody where you kind of throw everybody in the pool and do a nice little Christmas special type thing. I could see stuff like that happening. I don't see any like major, I hate using the word cinematic universe, but we're doing it so much lately. It seems like that's almost a foregone conclusion now, but uh, I mean, there's stuff like that. So I just think it's, it's the only way that they can even attempt to compete with Disney and Pixar. Yeah. Here's, here's, here's one thing before we went to our next uh, story. You know what this means for, for James people? He's going to be wanting a Constantine animated movie so bad. It's, it's got to happen, man. <laughs> it's got to happen at some point. Or or Warner Brothers will smarten up and just move it somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But moving on to our next story. Now, sticking with today, because we're recording this on Thursday. So, you know, we, we, when we, we put Nerd News together, we're like, okay, we got our story set up. But then this broke. So... Here's another thing that happened. Fox will not be presenting SDCC's Hall H due to piracy concerns. And this is huge news because we were talking about Hall H and how, you know, a lot of companies might not be doing it. Of course, Disney was in the same story as well that they might not present at Hall H either. Of course, like you've said in the past, they've got their D23. But... They said basically one of the reasons, and this is not confirmed, this was reported by the RAB, you know, studio insiders and stuff like that, but we still wanted to talk about it. But apparently this is over concerns over what happened at last year's Comic-Con, San Diego Comic-Con, when the Deadpool footage got leaked out and some stuff from X-Men Apocalypse got leaked out as well. They are worried that that's going to happen again. And we're talking about stuff like Assassin's Creed. There might even have been a look at Wolverine 3. And I don't know if they would have shown anything from Maze Runner, uh, the Death Cure or not, because that's delayed right now. But, I mean, I don't know, man. Is this a sign of things to come for Hall H? I'm starting to wonder now. I think that if you're SDC, if you're Comic-Con International right now, you're panicking because you've lost Fox you pretty much have, for the most part, lost Marvel, and you're more likely going to lose DC because if everything goes to D23 because of security concerns and, and stuff like that. But also, I want to play a little bit of devil's advocate as well, though. This, to me, is why the Hall H panels need to be streamed. Like, I, and here's yeah. the, and here's the pre- reason why they need to be. I mean, we talked about how they're going to start streaming, um, you know, a couple weeks ago. But here's the thing: this is why everything needs to be shown because. You're telling me that you're not going to show footage for Wolverine 3, you're not going to show footage for Deadpool 2 because you're afraid that somebody's going to take a camera phone and put it on the internet? Then you know what you do? You get in front of it and say, you know what, fuck it. We're going to show everything. We're going to show the panels and the trailers so that way we're ahead of the curve and we don't have to worry about stuff getting out. You know, because what happened, even with D23, like I think it was a couple of years ago, when they announced like all the Inhumans movies and stuff like that and all those other movies like Captain Marvel and everything else, Phase 3. What happened? Somebody brought a phone in and put the shit up and the whole presentation yep. up on the screen. You know, it's it's, it's kind of a catch-22, kind of a, a, a you're, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. But, I mean, not only that, but going back to Comic-Con International, if you're San Diego Comic-Con, how can you justify charging people all these ridiculous prices for Hall H stuff 
if Fox isn't going to be there, if Marvel's going to be doing their own thing with D23 and Disney and stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? So this is going to, I think, change the landscape of how major cons, especially SDCC, uh, works around and stuff like that. Not only that, but, I mean, we've we've talked about Hall H in the past and kind of like how the the mystique of Hall H is kind of gone, and it almost... It almost ruins your entire con because how the hell can you go see anything else if you're standing waiting to get into Hall H the whole time? And and I know that certain – I mean it's probably too late for DC to get out now and I realize for like DC TV properties and stuff like that, I could see that still happening because nobody's going to be able to pirate an entire episode. Right. Kind of thing like, a pilot, like they've shown pilots in the past and stuff like that. But think about it. Certain companies were good last year at San Diego Comic-Con of just right after the trailer aired or right after the panel was over – they just put the trailer up that they showed. And I don't understand this whole, well, we want it to be an incentive for people that stood in line in Hall H and waited the whole time and came down to San Diego. So you're going to incentivize a group of what? You want to say a 1,000 people? You want to go a 1,000? You want to go less than that? We'll go a 1,000. So you want to incentivize a 1,000 people over millions of people. That makes no sense to me. As, as a business person, that makes no sense. So you're saying you'd rather a 1,000 people see it and get chatter from a thousand people on social media than millions of people on social media. It just doesn't make any promotional sense to me. Right. And, and here's the thing. You got to remember Fox's last year where they're at uh, Comic-Con, what happened? That's when they were promoting Fantastic Four and that whole thing that happened there where like everybody was just mocking everybody being there. And, like, yeah, oh, that God. worked really well, didn't it? Yeah, it didn't work out really well. And of course, you know, and here's the thing too is part of it, you have to think about it as well. Because we understand films get jumbled around, they get things that push back, but sure, like yeah. one of the things they were pushing last year was Gambit, I believe. And, and you know, and, and you know, Gambit's gotten pushed back and everything else. And you know, but the, what what doesn't make sense to me if you're Fox, I mean, we love Fox, we have good friends with, over Fox, but you're coming off the high of Deadpool and you're not gonna be there to, you know recapture you know what i'm saying i know it's it's so hard for me because i this is one of those times where i truly see both perspectives on one hand i can't blame them for this right but on the other hand it's like really you're not gonna you're not gonna show your your anything from your new movies especially i kind of expected now i know that expectations are stupid but i kind of expected that this year at san diego comic-con we would at least get a title reveal for Wolverine 3. Of course, we think it's going to be Old Man Logan. We don't know. It could end up being Weapon X for all we know. Who knows what it's going to be. But I kind of expected that we would get something from that. And we'd get a little bit of information from uh, the second Deadpool movie. And maybe even X-Force. Maybe they're going to talk about that. I mean, come on. Well, let's not. How are you going to do do that now? You've got to do it at some point. You're not just going to put out a trailer on YouTube. Right. Well, now we're thinking mostly movies. But also TV. Like Gotham, yeah. you know, and, and Lucifer and everything like that. Like, you got season two of Lucifer coming, now, you know? Now, keep in mind, that would be under the umbrella of the Warner Brothers panel. Right. Warner Brothers would handle those Vertigo DC properties. But, I mean, your point still stands because they do have other television properties. But think about think about what happened to Hall H last year. And, and, I, and I think that it's great that they do these major presentations. But look who got into Hall H. With all due respect to this network, FX had their own Hall H panel right. for two shows. Right. Again, with all due respect, give me a break. Right, exactly. But so so for Strain and for Rock and Roll, whatever the hell it was, mm-hmm. you got into Hall H, come on. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. It was uh, it was sex, sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll was the other one. There you go. 
But uh, I, no, I, I mean, we'll see how this pans out, and we'll see you know where it takes uh, Comic Con International going forward. But go, speaking of going forward, James, you know, Nintendo is in a big, big pile of trouble because, of course, reports came out that hey, they are down. Profits at Nintendo are down sixty one percent. And and to get an idea of this, you know, you want to know what sixty one percent is. So pretty much last year, year ago. In yen, they had a profit of $41.8 billion, right? This year, as of March 31st, which was the you know the, the financial year for Nintendo, that dropped to $16.5 billion, which is $149 million United uh, American money. Right. Now, I mean, we know that the yen isn't the biggest currency in the world, but anytime you're dropping millions and billions in anything, that's a big deal. So, and then... Not only that, I mean, coming off the heels of that, then you've got the announcement that the Zelda game that everybody was going crazy over, right. the Wii U, not coming out now, going to be delayed again, but it looks like there's going to be a reason for that. Right, well, it was delayed to 2017 on both Wii U and the NX, and of course, why I say the NX? Because it came out this week that Nintendo said, hey, we have a release date for the Nintendo NX. Now, they didn't give out a specific day, but they did say... March 2017 is the release window for the for global release. Which I understand. I mean, people are like, "Well, why aren't they launching at holiday season?" Because that's when you're going to get all. You're going to get some stuff from PlayStation. You're going to get yep. some stuff from Xbox One. You don't necessarily want to launch. Well, because here's new the console during the holiday. Well, because here's the thing too: is holiday time. You know, PS4 and Xbox One, of course, uh, are. are kings of, of the they're dominating the gaming realm right now in terms of console sales but especially playstation 4 but what happens every year every couple of years we don't get new consoles in terms of technology and stuff like that we get slimmer consoles and new looks for the same consoles right or remember? peripherals or something right like that. well you know you hold you had the whole vr thing now yep. but i mean you look at like when playstation 2 was out you had the big rectangular playstation 2 what happened a year or two later the PlayStation Slim came out. It was a slimmer PlayStation 2. So we could get something like that with the PlayStation 4. So that's why you don't want to do it. But, man, you want to talk about a Hail Mary and a hope and a wing and a prayer. This, I think, will the NX will either make or break Nintendo in terms of console gaming, I think. Yeah, that's this sad. Is the last, yeah, this is the last-ditch effort for Nintendo. But in a way, they've kind of done it to themselves. They kind of played the, we're going to be the family console. And there is... Don't don't get me wrong. There is nothing wrong with that. But gaming evolved. Nintendo did not. They did not make enough titles that would cross between adults and for kids. And I think that hurt them. And we're seeing the the effects of that right now. Well, another problem too is the games they do have out right now. They're making they're getting a lot of complaints from gamers because they're making a lot of unnecessary changes. Like for example, take Star Fox for example, right? They made a lot of unnecessary changes to it. The controls were terrible. Things didn't work real well. You know, and so they're making so many unnecessary changes to yeah, the game. Yeah, throw that, Metroid in there as well. Exactly. And so people are kind of like getting pissed off at that. And they really have to, you know, and now they're, of course, branching into the mobile market because now they're coming out with new Animal Crossing mobile game and stuff like that. But you got to think, man, like they need to go back to the drawing board. And, and NX, like I said, it's that last thing that says, okay, this is our whole home console thing is riding on this. And it's sad because everything, you know, they, this is a company that started with the NES. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. This is Mario. And Mario is not supposed to be 
failing. You know, Mars was to be doing well. Yeah, think about how long they were the it console. I mean, they buried Sega eventually. I mean, it took a while, but they eventually ended up, they won that console I've... war. Now they're so far behind. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't even see anywhere in sight that they could pass Xbox or PlayStation 4 right now. As a matter of fact, they've already put out a statement saying that there's going to be nothing about the NX at E3 this year. They're going to focus on Zelda. So you're focusing on Zelda for E3 2016, that a game that was supposed to be released right. in 2015. Remember, we saw that trailer for it, too, yeah. so, I mean, you know, a while back. But I think that, you know, you look at this and what they're doing, and again, I think that when you look at the NX, you look at Nintendo overall, here's how the NX can, can work and how it can succeed. Again, the release date, get far away from a new console from your competitors as possible. That's one thing. Number two... Make sure that it's not peripheral based. Like I understand yes. VR is important and a yes. big thing now. I understand that the Wii, you know, had the whole nunchuck and everything, the controls. But again, you know, give us just a regular controller. Like just give us like a regular controller. Don't and another thing, make like this is why I messed with the Wii U and we talked about it before. Don't put a screen in the controller. Thank you. Do not I do not want to have to look away. From the screen. Right. And I've been over your house many times and you have a big, beautiful TV in your living room. And, you know, I would hate to have to look down at the at the, at the controller if I'm playing Wii U or whatever because I don't want, you know, you have this beautiful, massive yeah, TV, you know? these screens are big enough. I don't need a display on my controller to, to go through my inventory for games and stuff like that. I don't need that. Right. Just give me a part of the screen that I can put it on because to me... It's quicker that way. I mean, I've never, anytime I'd ever played like Final Fantasy or anything like that, I didn't feel like I was distracted by having to look on the screen because it's right there. I mean, you look up, you look down. It's very quick. If you look, you're really looking down and away from the screen if you're looking at a controller instead of the actual game itself. So hopefully they make those those changes. We've already heard rumors, you know, there's rumblings that this is going to be like two or three times more powerful than the PS4, but power means nothing if you don't have good content. Exactly. Well, speaking of rumors, one of the rumors that has been going around for a while was Daisy Ridley meeting with Tomb Raider and, you know, people behind the Tomb Raider movie. Will she be playing Lara Croft? Well, no, she won't be because here's why. According to the Hollywood Report, this is breaking news, by the way, According to The Hollywood Reporter, ex mocking star Alicia Verkander has been signed on to play Croft. And I know that people are going to be probably upset about this because they're married to the idea of Daisy Ridley. And yes, she was amazing in Star Wars The Force Awakens. Yes, Nick wants to marry her and have beautiful babies. But <laughs> just because you're married to the idea of a person in a role, just because you think that they would be perfect for it. I mean, we said Victoria Atkin would have been a great Laura Croft right. as well, Evie Fry from um, Assassin's Creed. But that doesn't mean that she's not going to be good because she was great in Ex Machina. She was amazing in Ex Machina. And yeah. We, and you got to look at it this way. You know, with everything they're doing with Laura Croft and Tomb Raider now, especially with the video games, I have faith in this movie going forward. You know, I don't, you know when you look at like the Angelina Jolie Tomb Raider movies, yeah, they were there, but, you know... I mean, the first this, one was pretty good, right? It was okay. I mean, but again, I think it was, you know, based on the games that it had, you know, before and what it was oh, yeah. up to. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then looking at now, where now it's much more gritty and gruesome and Lara gets the living shit beaten out of her by nature and everything else. And, mm-hmm. you know, she's fighting for her life. This, I think we're going to get a Tomb Raider movie with a lot more grit to it and a lot more darkness, I want to say, to it. 
Yeah, this is one of those times where I hope they stick as close to the game as possible. Oh, yeah. I, I know that we hate shot-for-shot shot stuff, but could you imagine a beautiful adaptation of that first game on the screen? Oh, my God. Or at least God. close to it. I would take that in a heartbeat. And, of course, they'll probably make some certain changes here and there to, you know, give a, give a surprise element and everything like that for people that have already played the game. But, again, remember, we've talked about this in the past with superhero properties. You have to make movies that are going to appeal to the general non-video game playing public. So there's going to be a lot of people that won't know the story of that game that, that I think would love this adaptation. I remember when I was playing it, you let me borrow it, and I was playing it over here at, at my house. My wife was actually sitting on the couch watching me play it because she was so engrossed in the story. So, I mean, that should tell you something right there. Exactly. And that's, and that's important. Again, going forward, I really, really, you know, you know they, they have the person, uh, Roar Uftag, who did The Wave. He's on board to direct the, the film. And mind you, this film's been in works since 2011 as well, That's yeah, been a while. <laughs> it's been, kind of been a while. Uh, so I just hope that this director... I really, the only way this movie can also be good outside of its tone and being kind of centered a little bit around the reboot uh, in terms of the game, I just really hope this director is a video game fan. I really want him to wish yeah. this guy wants to be a gamer and really get it. You know what I'm saying? Because that can make the difference between making an amazing video game movie like Tomb Raider and making it just like another adventure film, you know? Yeah, and this guy does not have a ton of major movies under his belt, so this would be his first major production, but again, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a bad movie no, or something I... you should be worried about. I actually think I'm very excited about this, and the fact that they grabbed... And, and I don't want to say Daisy Ridley's not a legit actress, because she is, and I think she would have been a great choice too, but this is another legit actress that they've grabbed for I th- this role. I think the part of the reason why Daisy Ridley wasn't offered and take the role... I think because, again, his film's in pro- and has been in production since 2011. She's currently doing Star Wars, and she's really in, you know, engrossed and submerged in that Star Wars world where they're filming all these different you know movies and everything else. Yeah. So I think it might have been a scheduling thing as well. Where yeah, like, she oh, just might not have had time. Yeah, they might have had a schedule. Who knows? Maybe when they do episode nine and this movie starts filming or whatever, and then she's like, hey, guys, I'm, I got to do episode nine. You know, I got back out, and then they start scrambling trying to find somebody new. So, again, Alicia Vikander, she was amazing in Ex Machina. I'm excited for her. I can't wait to see uh, how this plays out and how Tomb Raider uh, comes to the big screen, hopefully in a great way with this reboot. But coming up next, guess what? We're going to head to the 1970s version of New York with Dietrich Smith, of course, the illustrator of Dynamite Shaft, Imitation of Life. He's coming up next right here on the Down Nerdy Podcast. This is comic book writer Brendan Fletcher, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Gotta be honest, guys, when Nick and I first started reading Shaft, Imitation of Life, we're like, man, we've got to get somebody on from this book. So who do we get? Do we get Dietrich Smith? You're damn right we did. Dietrich, how you doing today? I'm doing fine, guys. And you? Oh, it's fantastic, man. We just got to say, dude, we, we have been reading this series since issue one. And it's just, it's fucking amazing. It's really absolutely brilliant. The stuff you and David do, it's, it's amazing. I uh, appreciate it, guys. Appreciate it. So, Dietrich, what I love about your art in the Shaft series also is how you, you capture the grime and the grit of 1970s New York City. So what is it about that era that intrigues you the most and just stands out to you? I think it's just um, seeing how Harlem was back then. You, you see how Harlem's been cleaned up quite, quite, quite much today. But um, like I said, David, David has me taking it back to how it really was and 
I'm, I'm having a, a great time doing it. Um, like I said, working off of David's script is, is, is a dream. It's a dream job. It's a dream opportunity. Um, everything that he's given me to write has been such a joy. I really don't have any more than I can say. I don't want to, you know, pump him up too much because he's already larger than life right now. I mean, he's pretty much writing every book for Marvel, it seems. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're glad that you guys got to team up on this one. And I'll echo what Nick said. I just love the fact that the book is set in the 70s. Now, I know that there was a modern uh, version of Shaft that came out in 2000 with Samuel L. Jackson. So given that, was there any temptation for you and David to kind of go with a more modern adaptation for this book? Uh, no, um, I was going strictly off of what David wanted to do. Um, David, you know, contacted um, Tittman's widow, uh, asked for the license, asked Dynamite to purchase the license, and stayed true to how Shaft is, the original Shaft. Um, like I said, those that weren't in the 70s um, didn't really know who Richard Roundtree was. They knew, they knew who Sam Jack is. They don't know who, you know, the real Shaft is. Oh, so yeah. that's what, you know... David wanted to stay true to that guy. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy, happy, happy to. I'm happy to illustrate Richard Roundtree because he was a an idol of mine growing up as well. So, and he did awesome on the original Shaft. He was great. I loved him. Oh yeah. Oh, what's great about Shaft too, Dietrich? Is just like when you watch the original trailer with Richard Roundtree. It's like a five minute trailer too. Yeah. It's just it's so so awesome too. <laughs> it's just a lot like, of attitude, man. I mean, so I mean. So far in the first three issues, Dietrich, we've seen a variety of encounters between Shaft and just many other characters. Uh, what has been your favorite panel and scene to illustrate and why so far in the series? Through issue three, I think I think it is the actual the scene that that was just presented in the third third issue where Shaft is doing the consulting um, yeah. at the movie theater. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and we see, and we see the gentleman pop up on the, up on the stage and and yell out this, you know, you jive ass motherfucking honkies. And, and like, <laughs> I love that. I love that part of the book where they're trying to work it out, trying to figure out how to say it. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. When I when I read that, I was just like, oh my goodness, I get to draw this. <laughs> your your facial expressions throughout that scene too were spot on to the writing. It really was. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty. I, I I think that is that's my favorite scene so far. But I, I, I actually, um, the scene where Gibbs and Owens, the two detectives, actually come into Shaft's office. Yeah, and um, and and I think I think I love that scene because I'm so in love with the colors on that. Mm-hmm. My colors, Alex Alex Gamera's is is such a wonderful colorist, and every chance that I get to work with him, I'm always asking. You know, can he can he work with me? Because, like I said, he sets the mood on this book. Uh, like I said, he he makes me look like not so much of a hack, you know, with my work. But like I said, his colors, like I told him, I said you can feel the warmth. You can you know you can feel that sunshine on Shaft's back as he's sitting in that office. Mm-hmm. It's just like you know, great stuff. That he's he's you know putting on my on my inks. Most definitely. As a matter of fact, another theme that I kind of noticed throughout this book when I was reading it is frustration and hesitation from Shaft. So despite how things, nothing seems to work out for him the way he expects it to. So what do you think kind of drives him to keep going now? And even at the end of issue three, now that it looks like he's going to have to go pursue the mob. Morals, having a good moral, having good moral foundation. I mean, you know, Shaft's not a bad guy. He's not a, he's not a 
a, a good guy. He's not going to go out of his way. But, you know, there's always that, you know, sense of I have to do right, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so he, he feels responsible in a sense. <laughs> so I, I think, like I said, I think it's just morals that are towing this story along. Pretty much the, the common common ground for all men, all women. Definitely. Definitely. We're talking, of course, to Dietrich Smith from Dynamite Chef, The Imitation of Life. Issues 1 through 3 are available now. Issue 4, which closes out the series, will be available on local comic book shelves and digitally on May the 11th. So, Dietrich, as we all know, the Shaft theme song is one of the most recognizable theme songs ever. So i got to ask you, if Dietrich Smith had his own theme song, what would be one verse from it? Whoa, uh, wow. Let's see, uh, one verse. Breaking the <laughs> artist my... right right now, too, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, put, you guys put me on a spotlight. Let's see, um, just do you. <laughs> <laughs> His name's Dietrich Smith. Oh, yeah, he has some, wor- some words for you. Just do you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> say, we, we would have dropped a beat for you, but that's no, no. That would not have worked out well at all. I can just picture Dietrich walking down the streets in New York City, like Harlem area or whatever, and just having like a big fur coat on with like huge aviator sunglasses and just pull the shades down a little bit, David Caruso style, and be like, just do you. And then Smith just comes across like bold letters across the screen. I'll tell you what I want now. I want a, I want a just do you variant cover. That's what I want. That's what I think should be next up. But actually, you know, Dietrich, when I look at your art in this series, it's kind of what I imagine a Shaft animated series would look like between the, the colors as well. So if that were to ever happen... Who do you would think would be a great voice for John Shaft? But we'll throw Samuel L. Jackson right out the window right now because that seems too easy. Who do you think would be a great voice for Shaft? Oh man, I don't know why his 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 voice is in my head. Um, I can't even remember the actor's name, but he he's he's um the Candyman. I know his his voice. Oh is yeah, deep. oh that guy. <laughs> yeah. I know exactly who you're talking about. I can't think of his name either, but yeah. yeah okay. and, and, and he's, and he's, um, he's zoom on the flash right now. Well, he does the voice for zoom on flash right now. CW flash. Oh yeah. He was um, like, oh yeah. He was in like the final destination movies and, and everything too. Yeah. Yeah. Tony yeah. Todd. That's his name. Tony Todd. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. He would be awesome. That is a great call, man. Awesome call. Hopefully that actually happens. Now I wanted to point out I- something. That you said to us on Twitter. Mm-hmm. You told us on Twitter that you were secretly planning to conquer the world. So, <laughs> which one of Shaft's characteristics do you think would best help you do that? Being a ladies' man. <laughs> <laughs> Just do you, Dietrich. Just do you. I wonder. I wonder now. If Dietrich's probably like purchasing a hot tub and like a. Bottles of crystal and everything else. Just, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, women, 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 pretty much rule the world secretly. I mean, mothers <laughs> rule the world. <laughs> so hey, if, if you if you get good, if you get in good with the women, hey, you're you're on top right there. You're on so, top right there. Oh, absolutely. Between between Dietrich's just do you and the whole ladies' man aspect, you can be the new Dosakis guy. You really yes! could. Yes. <laughs> 
Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Stay, stay drawing, my friends. <laughs> stay drawing, my friends. <laughs> oh man. So so Dietrich again. You know, thank you for coming out, man. Where can we? Before I let you go, bud. Where can people find you on social media? Pretty much through my name, DietrichOSmith.com is my website, or you can find me DietrichOSmith on Twitter, on Facebook, or on Instagram. Um, try to hit me on Instagram because I'll try to like what you have and you can try to like what I have. I try to always return. I'm never, never too big. That's what, you know, if, if, if I can, I, I, if I could get as large as, as George Clooney or, or Michael Jordan, I would, <laughs> I, <laughs> well, well, thanks to just I do would, you, that's happening. <laughs> I would never, I would never stop paying attention to, to, you know, those that, you know, follow me. Well, well, we're glad you were able to come on and talk to us this week. The fourth and final issue of Shaft Imitation of Life will be available May the 11th at your local shops and digitally. You can find out more by going to dynamite.com as well. Dietrich Smith, thank you so much for coming on and talk about your art for Shaft, the Imitation of Life. All right, guys. I'm glad to be on. Glad you guys had me on. You know, I bet after the interview, Dietrich probably went back to his like turntable style bed or like his hot tub or whatever, put on, you know, took off the, the, humongous fur coat. He still has the aviator shades on, just stares right at the camera, because you know there's got to be a camera somewhere. And he just says, just do you. Absolutely. And those nice polished gold fixtures and stuff. Not not the cheap stuff, not the brass, no. No. Solid, Solid gold. Because that's how he rolls. Exactly. That's, and gold is exactly what his art is in the book, his illustrations. I mean, if you haven't read Shaft Imitation of Life yet from Dynamite, you're totally missing out on not just great Art by Dietrich, but just David Walker does just great, great storytelling. The script is amazing, and it's it's really intense. You know, I reviewed it, the first issue on the show a while back, and it's just the, the the tone and the fact that it is that grimy 1970s Richard Roundtree era. It really adds and gives it the comic its own, you know, unique tone and character and it captures that too it really captures richard roundtree's character really good and the and the actual story of shaft itself it's absolutely amazing so if you are a fan at all of of that series or of those movies you have got to pick up this book you won't be sorry exactly man and again thanks to dietrich smith for coming on this week and talking to us about shaft imitation of life now remember issue four comes out may 11th issues one through three are available now so go get them because you will not want to miss out on this awesome series. And again, that's going to do it for us here on the Down Nerdy Podcast. Thanks, Dietrich Smith. Remember, you can hit us up on social media, facebook.com slash downnerdy. We're also on Twitter at downnerdy757. Same thing for Instagram. We're at downnerdy757 as well, James. Yes, and I'm at James Ace with them. That's W-I-T-H-A-M. Anything else you need to know about us, you can get on our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. You can find out the new other comics that we're reviewing on there. You can also find out what's going on on this week's show. Any trailers that we reviewed, those will be up there. You can actually buy Shaft Imitation of Life right there on our website. Find out what events we're going to be at as well on Facebook. Free Comic Book Day, May 7th, the Fantasy Escape Comics and Cards. And Tidewater Comic Con, going to be coming up couple weeks after that find out all the info at down nerdypodcast.com exactly i'm at merc with one arm on the twitter and again hit us up on our website down we have a couple of awesome reviews there for you that we write every week and again 
Twitter, Downer757, and more. We're going to be doing a live show next Saturday, free comic book day from Fantasy Escape Comps and Cards on Aragona Boulevard in Virginia Beach. So if you can't come see us live and if you're not local, guess what? We're going to be on Facebook broadcasting live, bringing all the great stuff from Bob's over at Fantasy Escape Comps and Cards. Again, on Aragona Boulevard in Virginia Beach. But that's going to do it. Again, thanks to Dietrich Smith. Thanks to Dynamite for putting out a great comic as well. And also, hey, I say this to you every week, and I'm going to say it to you right now. Practice safe comic reading. Always bag and board your comics.